Hello everybody and welcome back to the Diecast Movie Podcast. We are a podcast for movie lovers. We do movie discussions where the genre is decided by the role of a die. And we also do interviews. Thank you for joining us for episode 210. In this episode is an interview that my dad, Stephen, did. He is joined by Ron Palumbo to discuss Abbott and Costello. We are extremely lucky to have a guest appearance by Beverly Washburn at the end of this episode to share her memories of working with Lou Costello on Wagon Train. Some information about our interviewee, Ron Palumbo. Ron Palumbo is the foremost authority on the careers of Bud Abbott and Lou Costello and a valued consultant to the Abbott and Costello estates. With encouragement and approval of the families, Ron founded the official Abbott and Costello fan club in 1986 to commemorate the 50th anniversary of Bud and Lou teaming up in burlesque. The fan club is still active and publishes an online magazine. Palumbo co-authored with Bob Fermank. Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, the definite, definitive guide to every one of the team's 36 films. Leonard Malton said that it had more details on the making of their films than any book I've ever seen. Palumbo is also the author of Buck Pri- Privates, the original screenplay, and Hold That Ghost, the original screenplay, which meticulously document the making of two of Abbott and Costello's best-loved films and include the shooting scripts. He has a third book in the series, on One Night in the Tropics, the team's film debut coming out in early 2024. The Library of Congress has called on Ron to write essays on the boys' signature routine, Who is on First, and their most popular film, Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. He has also written the linear notes for the definitive box set of the team's films and television series and provided acclaimed commentary tracks for their films and episodes of the classic TV series. Ron has appeared in A&E's biography Meet Abbott and Costello, The Today Show, and the documentary Abbott and Costello Meet the Monsters, as well as countless radio shows and podcasts. He is an advertising creative director who has won every industry award, but regrets that he has never had the opportunity to use clips of Bud and Lou in a commercial. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast. And today we're going to be talking about one of my favorite things, Abbott and Costello. I loved watching him growing up, and I am joined with probably the foremost expert, and that's Ron Palumbo who's written the book Abbott and Costello in Hollywood with Bob Fermanac and has also done other books like Buck Private, the original screenplay, and Hold That Ghost, the original screenplay, and has coming out soon next year, One Night in the Tropics, the original screenplay. He is also in charge of the International Abbott and Costello Fan Club, which was started, I believe, back in 1986 and is very close to both families. So I don't think there's anybody out there I could get on the show that knows more about both men and their routines and stuff like that and their life in the movies than you. Welcome to the show, Ron Palumbo. Thanks for having me, Stephen. I've enjoyed your podcast, and it's nice to be a part of it. Well, I'm so glad you, you um, agreed to do this, and I'm so glad for Bob Fermanac to um, suggesting that you, the two of us get together to talk about them. And I'm thinking your introduction to Abbott and Costello is probably similar to mine. Uh, 
what was it like? How did you learn about these two legends? Well, I grew up in New York, and you couldn't help but become an avid Abbott and Costello fan uh, because there were, what, six TV channels here back then, and Abbott and Costello were on two of them. One channel showed the movies, and one channel showed the TV series. They struck a chord with me, as they do with many people. Nobody made me laugh as much as they did, and I appreciated Lou's physical comedy and the verbal comedy, which really depended on Bud Abbott. Uh, they were a great combination of both, and I became a huge fan. And as I was growing up, though, the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields were rediscovered and celebrated, and Abbott and Costello were completely ignored. And I thought, wait a minute, who's on first is the greatest comedy routine of all time. Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein is a brilliant movie, and the Abbott and Costello TV series is hilarious. There's nothing else like it. Uh, didn't these other people see this? Now, this was in the 1970s, and the Marx Brothers and W.C. Fields were popular in the 1930s, so maybe there was some incubation period that had to happen before people could be rediscovered. Maybe Abbott and Costello were still kind of contemporary then, because they were you know, still making movies into the 1950s, and Bud Abbott worked into the 1960s doing the television cartoons. But I just wanted to push the process along for Abbott and Costello. I became fascinated with them, but there was no place to learn about them. So I started doing my own research. You know, some fans collect uh, posters and stills. I collected articles and interviews and reviews and information. Uh, then a couple of books started appearing. Leonard Maltin wrote a book about movie comedy teams that had a chapter about Abbott and Costello. Jim Mulholland wrote the Abbott and Costello book. Another book came out called Who's on First that had pictures and dialogue from their movies. So we started to get some information about Abbott and Costello and some acknowledgement of their talent. Then Chris Costello wrote a biography about her father called Who's on First. And I wrote her a letter and we became friends. And there was no email back then, so we either called or wrote letters to each other. And I asked her, why hasn't anybody started a fan club for these guys? And she said, that's a great question. The families have been asking that themselves. So uh, we continued to speak every once in a while, right? And then finally one day something happened to me at work. I worked in advertising and I had done a shoot with a photographer and he sent the photographs up to my office in a box. Now he didn't know anything about my love of Abbott and Costello, but the box he happened to use was from Abbott Laboratories. Now I guess this was just laying around his studio, but at the same time, I got a letter from Chris Costello that had her logo on it. So I had a box that said Abbott Laboratories and I had a letter that said Chris Costello and Company on my desk. And I thought, well, this is a sign. So the next time I spoke to Chris, I said, I'm going to start the fan club. And she was very excited and she said, I was hoping you'd be the one to do it. So, because she really knew of my love of Abbott and Costello and my knowledge of Abbott and Costello. And she said it was, you know, her loss not knowing me before she even did the book because I had so much other information I could have helped uh, with fact checking. But so I started the fan club in 1986 because it was the 50th anniversary of their teaming up in burlesque. And then I began to find that there were people who felt like I did, that were so happy that I started the club. In fact, a few of them said that, you know, I'm in this other fan club for these other comedians, but my favorites are Abbott and Costello. And they were very grateful. And that was uh, over 35 years ago now, and it's still going. And I'm very proud that we were able to connect Abbott and Costello fans and uh, promote Bud and Lou. Uh, then I met the archivist for the Abbott and Costello estates, Bob Fermanek, and he and I got along great. And he introduced me to Bud Abbott Jr., 
who had so many great stories about growing up with his dad and visiting Universal as a kid. And Bob said, you know, we should do a book together for the 50th anniversary of Bud and Lou's first movie. Now, I had a lot of material in my own collection, and Bob had a lot in his, and he also knew where Universal documentation was kept, the scripts, the product, the production reports, and all that information like that. And there were still a lot of people still alive who had worked with them. So we did the book Abbott and Costello in Hollywood, which is the definitive book about all of their films. And since then, I've done a book about Buck Privates and a book about Hold That Ghost. And my next book coming out soon is on their first movie, One Night in the Tropics. And these books have a thorough production history, over 150 stills from each of the movies. And they also have the shooting script for these films, which makes them a really valuable record of how the films were made and what went on behind the scenes. And uh, in between books, I was asked to write the liner notes for the boxed sets of their movies and TV series and appear in documentaries and on interviews like this one. And I feel very honored to celebrate Abbott and Costello and help tell their story. And so uh, I've become a consultant to the estates and anything that's related to their careers, I'm very proud and happy to do that. I don't pretend to know the ins and outs of the personal lives, but... Uh, I know some of the stories because the families have shared stories with me, but they don't have any mommy dearest stories about these guys. They loved their dads and they were very proud of their dads. And I'm one of those that, as you, as you also explained, grew up watching the Evan and Costello. It was always those things. If it was raining on a Saturday or a Sunday and you weren't going outside to play, <laughs> there always seemed to be an Evan and Costello movie on and, you just never knew which one it was going to be. A lot of times it was Abbott and Costello be Frankenstein, but I got introduced to Buck Privates this way, Hold That Ghost, all the Abbott and Costello meets that followed the Frankenstein movie. And it was just amazing. You just have to watch them. And you just, I enjoyed the physical comedy, but I also, I think, enjoyed mostly the wordplay. And I didn't get to see the who's on first routine or hear it until after the movie. You know, so I was like later in teenage years and then I finally got to hear the routine and I'm, I'm telling you, it's evergreen. It's, it's the, it's the perfect routine. I've played it for my children when they were growing up and they still hear it. It's just, you can't ask for better wordsmithing, better timing. It's just, it's just been nailed. I don't think it could ever be beaten as the, the number one comedy routine, in my opinion. I remember the first time I heard it, I was six or seven, and I remember not being able to catch my breath from laughing so hard. Uh, what happened with Abbott and Costello is they used a lot of old burlesque material. Burlesque comics had this shared body of sketches and gags that they drew on, but it was important to be able to customize that material, like jazz musicians take a basic tune and riff on the melody, or how a different singer interprets the same song. Great burlesque comedians adapted the material. They worked on it. They added to it. They edited it. They made their made it their own. Phil Silver said the only comics who made it out of burlesque were the creative comedians who knew how to adapt and work with the material rather than just do it the same old way over and over again. Because, you know, hundreds of comics were using the same material. The audiences were familiar with the material. So to survive, you really had to freshen it up and not get booed off the stage. Who's on First is a great example. It was based on an older routine called I Work on Watt Street by uh, uh, the seminal comedy team Weber and Fields in the 1890s. And then out of that came another routine called Who Is Your Boss, which Bud Abbott always pointed to as the real forerunner of Who's on First. There was a business located on Watt Street. The boss's name was Who. There was a woman who worked there named Ida No. 
I don't know. And there was another guy named He. Now, this got transposed onto baseball before Abbott and Costello teamed up. They each did the baseball version with other partners, but it was different from what would become their version of who's on first. They expanded it to uh, eight positions. They never had a right fielder, by the way. And they made it the most famous comedy sketch of all time. They put a lot of new material in it, in it and uh, worked on it and worked it out and kept building on it. So again, when I saw all these other comedians being celebrated, I said, what about who's on first and Abbott and Costello? And, and always like when I think with TV shows, movies, music, when things are rediscovered, that is the new, you know, thing, it thing, the it thing that everybody's talking about at that time. And then some of the things you wonder, why isn't this being talked about? Well, you know, now in hindsight, it's time is coming. It's just a matter of people re rediscovering. Right now, everybody was focused, or at that time, W.C. Fields and the Marx Brothers and so on. And now, later on, Abbott and Costello get their proper due. And well, that's the beauty of it is, is people rediscovering these, like I said, with my children, and then eventually their children are going to rediscover a, not just Abbott and Costello, but the other people we've mentioned and the Laurel and Hardy and all the rest. Right, right. And then they're but, just going to be overjoyed. Yeah, comedians uh, seem to get rediscovered like fine artists. A couple of years ago, Martin and Lewis were rediscovered as well. Anybody who was uh, so important to their decade and really connected with audiences obviously were relatable to people then, and they're probably still relatable to people because they have something that is a classic human truth or a classic human behavior. Now, one of the things we kind of jumped the gun a little bit is we didn't talk about how the two of them started out in meeting. And... You know, from my understanding is, you know, Bud, Bud Abbott obviously started off first in the field because he's older, you know, but I think about like seven, eight years or nine years older than Lou right. and how they got through. And he eventually became the number one straight man. And Lou went out to Hollywood, had some struggles and eventually made it back. And the two joined together. But I didn't know if you wanted to flesh out any more of that story because you're more of an expert at denying it. Well, if you look at some of the early biographies, it always mentions that Bud Abbott's parents were in the circus. But more importantly, Bud's father worked for the Columbia Burlesque Wheel from about 1902 to 1925. This was the biggest and classiest burlesque wheel in the country at that time. You know, burlesque was clean back then. There was real restrictions about how the girls dressed. There was no stripping. You couldn't say hell or damn on the stage. It was designed for middle-class audiences who couldn't go to Broadway shows or didn't have Broadway shows in the cities where they lived. So they would send out about three dozen shows to about the same number of theaters. It was called the burlesque wheel because these shows rotated through these theaters. So Bud's father traveled with a show as an advance man. And when Bud was a teenager, he started as a ticket taker in a Columbia burlesque theater in Brooklyn and then worked in the box office as an assistant treasurer. And that started Bud's real education in burlesque. He saw dozens of performances each week and a new show every week. He saw famous comedy teams then, too, like Bobby Clark and Paul McCullough. Abbott and Costello worked with Bobby Clark later on in Broadway in the streets of Paris. Another famous comic was Leon Errol, who they worked with in the movie The News Hangs High. And Billy Gilbert, who worked with uh, Laurel and Hardy very often, was another one. So Bud Abbott was spending his free time watching the comics. And eventually, about 1925, um, he moved on stage as a straight man. And he had a very practical reason for doing this. He was producing a tab show that had a straight man, a couple of comics, and a few chorus girls. 
And it was very low budget, and they were playing very small theaters. And, you know, he wasn't making any money. So he fired the straight man, and he went on stage as the straight man himself because he needed to save the straight man's salary. And then Bud gets more and more experience on stage in the late 1920s working with different comedians. At the same time, Lou Costello turns 21, and he convinces his parents to let him go to Hollywood to try to become a movie star. And he goes out to Hollywood in 1927 and spends a year working as a laborer, sometimes as an extra, and sometimes as a stuntman. And he's in Laurel and Hardy's Battle of the Century. You can see him sitting ringside at a boxing match. And as a stuntman, he broke his ankle in a big epic about the gold rush called Trail of 98. There's a still photograph of him uh, with a cast around his leg. Lou said he was in something like uh, 60 silent films. And then in the late 1920s, the talkies came in and stage actors became a hot commodity in Hollywood. And Lou didn't have any stage experience, so he uh, started on his way back east to try to get a job on the th in the theater. And his money ran out in St. Joseph, Missouri, and he talked his way onto the stage in a small burlesque company. And he started performing skits and also developing some of his own material. And he stayed in St. Joseph about six months. And the following year, he was hired for a show on the Mutual Burlesque Wheel. By this time, Mutual had replaced the old Columbia Wheel. Mutual is more hip than Columbia. And the Mutual Wheel is uh, taking inspiration from some of the musicals on Broadway, including the Ziegfeld Follies and Earl Carroll's Vanities. And a lot of comedians and performers moved to the Mutual Wheel during the Roaring Twenties, including Bud Abbott. Now, as far as we know, Abbott and Costello did not meet in any mutual shows. Mutual shows were self-contained units like the Columbia shows that went out on tours to different theaters. But then soon after that, though, the Depression hits, and these big wheels with all of these shows and all these theaters can't afford to send shows out on the road because people just aren't coming to theater. So the wheel crumbles, and Abbott and Costello go to work for local independent burlesque theaters around New York City. And the most famous ones were probably the Minsky's. Both of them worked for the Minsky's in the early 1930s, and they probably first met at Minsky's Brooklyn Theater in 1933. They were with different partners, but they were still on the same bill. And Lou was good, but he was still a little bit green, I think, as a comedian at that point. But their most important meeting was two years later in 1935 at the Eltinge Theater on 42nd Street. They were both booked in for several months with different partners, and Lou's partner became ill, and Bud pinched hit for him. And everyone said in the uh, everyone in the cast said, "You guys should team up." They saw the chemistry there, but that didn't happen for almost another year until 1936. That theater, by the way, in 1998 was gutted and moved about 170 feet west to become the entrance for a multiplex. And when I found out about that plan, I contacted the architects and the developer, and I told them that this is the theater where Abbott and Costello first worked together. And they were very excited, and they built two big balloons of Bud and Lou and rigged them to appear as if Bud and Lou were pulling the theater to its new location. It got a lot of publicity here in New York, and I was very proud of that. So from uh, 1936 on, Abbott and Costello are working what's left of burlesque and finding who's on first and other sketches and uh, trying to make them their own, like the analogy with jazz. The one thing I've always noticed when people talk about comedians, especially Bud and Lou is, you know, we always, like you've said a few times, Bud was the straight man and I've said it too. And, and, and Lou is a comedian. And some people think, don't understand really what a straight man does and what the comedian does and how they work so well together. 
and because you, you'll see people talk about it in certain movies and other things like oh this person was a great straight man in this because you have all these comedic actors but they don't realize and they'll say well all he did was just react or didn't do much he just had to say his lines but if the comedians don't have somebody to play off of it's yeah. going to die on the vine or, or you need somebody that really plays off of it well and could you explain like how important Bud was with Lou and vice versa? Because I think people sometimes only focus on Lou Costello and forget that Bud was 50% of this equation. Yes, it was absolutely an equal partnership, but you know, Costello gets the lion's share of the attention and the footage and deservedly so because he's uh, very funny and charismatic, but without Abbott, Costello never would have gotten to those heights and neither would Abbott without Costello. These guys were meant to be with each other. And one of the great things about Bud Abbott was he was also a very sharp guy. But if he came up with an idea for a gag or a funny line, he would give it to Lou because he knew his job was to be the straight man. He didn't want to be the funny guy or need to be the funny guy. His job was to get all the audience's sympathy on Lou. And if you think about it, he did an amazing job. You know, there were funny stories about little kids coming up to yell at Bud Abbott for being so mean to Lou, but Bud would later say that that was music to his ears because he knew he had done his job well. Yeah, because the key thing is what's best for the group, the duo, or the movie, or the play, or the whatever you're doing, whatever performance, what is, what's going to make the laugh? What's going to make the, the gag work? And, and knowing your spots. And, and yeah, it's sometimes nice nowadays people say, oh, we'll sub subvert expectations but sometimes it's fine to have the expectations because if it's performed well you're going to be thoroughly entertained even if you know where it's going as you said earlier you know a lot of these jokes you're going to know where certain things are heading but it's the mannerisms i mean go back to who's on first that we're talking about the verbal dialogue but it, it works also because of the exasperation that luke costello brings yes. to the role Yes. of that but if you, so if you see it it works so much better than when you hear it because you can see how his body language and facial expressions are selling it even more you know what's interesting when you watch the different versions of who's on first through the years costello got more and more exasperated over the years and that made it funnier and funnier so i think you're right that's a great point the frustration on both parts gets ratcheted up somebody uh, once asked lou in the 1950s after they'd been doing Who's on First for about 20 years, if it ever got tired. And he said, absolutely not, because Abbott and I try to catch each other to keep it fresh. And that was the secret. You know, the routine does have a definite structure, but within that structure, they can vary things and double back and repeat things and so on. And so that's how they kept it fresh, because they really had to listen to one another and follow along with the routine. And that's the key thing for any actor or comedian is to really pay attention and really be invested in the scene. And that's how it becomes believable to the audience. If it's not believable, it's not going to be funny. Exactly. And one of the things I noticed when I was researching this, and I think it came back when they were doing Who's on First or one of their routines on radio. And I didn't notice at all until there was a, there was a the feedback they received from the producers or whatever was their voices were too similar. And Lou altered his voice a little bit, so to, to that to his iconic, eventually to his iconic voice, and that just blew my mind when I read that. And I just want to make sure that that really that, that really happened because when you read stuff online, you always wonder how what the validity of it is. 
Yeah, that's true. Uh, if you hear any of the early radio broadcasts, he's got this very high voice. To me, it's almost annoyingly high. Uh, eventually, he toned it down, but he still started out a little bit high in the movies because he had to carry the brand into movies so that people would know this was the same guy you heard on the radio. Bud didn't have that raspy voice yet, that Bud Abbott voice we're familiar with, so they had to do something to kind of uh, distinguish themselves. It just blew my mind. That, you know, I was like, oh, well, I guess what, well, somebody had to alter their voice up a little bit, and you, you want to work and you want to grow your brand, so to speak. So it's like, okay, we got to fix this. Otherwise, they, they might not keep having us come on. Yeah, on yeah. The- now, eventually, you know, the radio led them to grow into more popularity, and eventually that moved them into the movies. And, of course, I think, if I remember correctly, the first one is One Night in the Tropics, which you have that book coming out. And what, what, if you can explain how they, how they got pulled into that, what, how, how did that, all the things happen? Well, actually, you know, they were offered their first movie in 1938, about six months after starting on The Kate Smith Show. The picture got delayed and delayed. They were supposed to do it on their summer break from the radio show, but by the time it was ready to shoot, um, they couldn't do it because their contract with Kate Smith wouldn't let them miss a broadcast. So that early opportunity was lost. So they could have been in the movies maybe two years sooner. But their manager, Eddie Sherman, was very wary of MGM, and he thought that they'd have a better opportunity at Universal. So they signed to do... One Night in the Tropics, and of course they stole the movie, and that led to a 15-year career at Universal and 28 films just at that studio alone. In fact, uh, they got a percentage deal with Universal that turned out to be very lucrative for them because their movies were big hits. They were top box office, and they became the highest-paid stars at Universal and among the highest-paid stars in Hollywood throughout the 1940s. And, uh, I mean, they can always look back in the gate receipts and everything else. They did, I mean, for dominate as the stars, either number one or in the top ten for, what, like a decade and a half? I mean, it was it's a long run. They were in the top ten for eight years and in the top 15 for 12 years. They were the first comedy team to place on the top ten. The Marx Brothers never did it. Laurel and Hardy never did it. The Three Stooges never did it. Uh, they also made more feature films than any other comedy team. And they were the only Universal stars on that list. And they were the single biggest source of income for Universal throughout that whole period. They saved the studio in the 1940s with their service comedies and later on with the horror comedies. You know, Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein was one of the cheapest productions at Universal in 1948, but it was also one of the biggest hits. I was going to say, Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein is always going to be to me the number one horror comedy and and my personal top 10 film it's always in that list which i think for all movie fans your top 10 list kind of fluctuates to who's in what place depending on what mood you're in that day but there's there's perennials that always stay in the top 10 and this this is the perfect film to introduce people to the universal monsters it's the perfect one to watch with younger children and older people it's it's family friendly it's you're going to laugh you're going to just enjoy it all the way through and you're going to have i call it the safe scares you know type thing where you can yeah. you can laugh but, it, but having a castello and having a castello work the original shaggy and scooby <laughs> yeah yeah it is a very safe scare now but back in 1948 universal got a lot of complaints from movie theater owners about kids screaming and crying and all kinds of bedlam uh in the movie theaters 
because the movie is genuinely scary in places for kids. Um, now, Lou heard about some of that, and he decided to make Jack and the Beanstalk just for kids because he recognized, you know, that they had a great deal of kiddie fans, but also, I think, to make amends for scaring them in Abbott and Costello and Me Frankenstein. When you're watching the movie, you can see some of the routines from the earlier movies reutilized. But as you said earlier, they're not just doing it verbatim. They're, they're reinvigorating it for that movie. And I, it, to me, it's like a magician who's working on his gag, working on his trick. Yeah. And they're like, okay, what, people have seen this trick a thousand, a million, billion times or whatever. Let me find a way to make this interesting for me and also them. And, and I think that's why you see magicians that'll watch other magicians, just even though they know what the trick's going to be, they just enjoy the show. Comedians love watching Abbott and Costello because they know they're going to be thoroughly entertained. And, they, and it's just amazing how they have those routines. And you see that with the different movies, how they reinvent that work and keep it fresh. A lot of credit should also go to John Grant, who was their head writer. He was a well-known burlesque producer and performer. And he worked with Costello and Abbott before they even teamed up. And then he worked for them on the Kate Smith show and went to Hollywood with them. He worked on almost every screenplay. You know, another thing about Meet Frankenstein is that Lou really didn't like the script and resisted doing it. And there were a couple of places where they had to talk him into doing specific scenes, like the scene with the moving candle on the coffin lid. He didn't want to do that. You know, they were so used to doing the moving candle in a specific way the, you know, the way they had done it in Hold That Ghost, they knew where every laugh was in those old routines. So anytime you modified them, they worried that it wasn't going to work and it wasn't going to be funny. So John Grant had to demonstrate it and uh, talk him into doing it. And then Lou got very excited. And the candle moving on the coffin is just an iconic scene in that movie. So John Grant freshened up those routines and they really trusted him, uh, you know, most of, the t- most of the time. Yeah, and I, I appreciate people that keep trying to look at their work and try to improve it. I think um, I'll briefly talk about this. I used to teach CPR class. I still do, but I used to work for the Red Cross and you had the set script, you had a set thing, but you always would try to improve how you're going to be presenting it to that particular group each time. And mm-hmm. every time I'd go home, I'd reflect, what could I do differently? Could I have done this differently? Cause you know, the questions are roughly going to be the same. Your answer is going to be the same. And then you find a way to, to make it interesting for the students to learn, especially if they're, if they're taking the course multiple times because they need it for their job. Yeah. And so I can appreciate people that do that same thing where they put that extra work in because they could have not done it. And then you get these sequels that you see sometimes Hollywood putting out over the decades where they just repurpose the exact same gag, just changing the location, but it's, everything else is the same and it doesn't work. Or if you can tweak it here and there, now it works. Oh, yeah, yeah. But let's not ignore the fact that they still did the same material over and over again on radio and in movies and on TV. That was something that the critics complained about when they were the TV series went on the air in the 1950s. They were also doing live TV once a month on the Colgate Comedy Hour and using the same routines. So you'd see it on the TV series and again on live TV a few weeks later. And sometimes in the movies, Universal was reissuing the old movies at the same time. So people were seeing the same routines over and over again. And eventually people got tired of it. I think that contributed to the waning of Abbott and Costello's careers in the 1950s. They were, you know, competing with themselves. 
if they had held some of that stuff back or done other material, maybe they would have lasted even longer. And then, you know, Martin and Lewis came along and they have a totally different, maybe fresher take on what a two-man comedy team should be. And see, where I'm coming from, and I, I exactly understand that, because I see that with, um, we can use the analogy, the Marvel film, you know, TV and the movies, overexposure, which is the same thing happened to Abbott and Costello, where you're seeing a lot of the same gags, storylines, whatever you want to call it, being yeah. replayed. Yeah. And it, eventually it just it oversaturates the market. But of course, when I was growing up, I didn't see the TV show. I didn't see the TV show until very recently. And um, so I wasn't seeing that all the time. I was just seeing the movie. So for me, I was getting it in the proper burst where you're right. The critics back then being contemporary, they're getting, I mean, everything's coming all out at once. And I can see using, I think, the Marvel is a good example of it. You just get hit with too much, and people wonder, why is it going down? It's because it's just too much of it. Yeah, these studios are so greedy and lazy. It, they just burn a good thing out. This is what happened with Abbott and Costello, too. The studio just wanted to turn their movies out like sausages, and it contributed to Abbott and Costello fatigue. I mean, it got to the point where when a new film came out, they would have to put the words all new in the ads because there were so many reissues of their earlier movies floating around at the same time. If the studio had shown some restraint, maybe Bud and Luke could have lasted a bit longer. And that I agree. I think they could have, or it could have been maybe where they had a, a few-year hiatus, so to speak, and then they come back, re, rework the, you know, rework the material, come up with new ideas, and then they, you know, they're back. And everybody's like, oh, Abbott and Costello, we remember them, and now look, they're a little bit different. There's, you know, some of the some of the old, but a lot more new, or whatever. Who knows? But that's revisionist history because it didn't happen. And I, I think part of it is the TV show coming on at the same time as you said with the movie. And I just saw it recently because I got season one on the Blu-ray. Right. And I know season two of the TV show is coming out, basically coming at the end of this month. So this episode will be coming out in January. So you can get it, you can pre-order it, or you can get it right when it comes out right after. I think it's the end of the month. So it'll be available to you. And that's how I got to see a lot of these classic routines intercorporated into the episodes. I didn't know if you wanted to talk about the TV series a little bit, because you do have a few commentary tracks, I think, on both seasons. Well, right, yeah. When they started to do live television on the Colgate Comedy Hour, they found that it was hard to maintain the quality because it was live. So they were looking for a way to do that and be able to control the chaos a lot better and use the, and still use their old routines. So they started the TV series. And most Hollywood stars were not allowed to do TV. It was the enemy, right, to, to the big movie studios. But when Abbott and Costello renewed their contract, they had a clause that let them do TV. The first season of the TV series is really a pastiche of all these great burlesque routines. You know, some of the episodes are like little versions of their movies, but, you know, there's none of the plot or the musical numbers that uh, the movies have. And Jim Holland was the first person to point out that the TV series is a very important record of these great burlesque routines. Sid Fields, who played the landlord, also put together those episodes. And by the time they were ready to do the second season, they had basically used up the burlesque routines in the first season. So season two, which is coming out on January 30th, is more like two real comedy. That was by choice. They hired two uh, writers who had done a lot of two real comedies, Jack Townley and Clyde Brookman. And Brookman was most famous for working with Buster Keaton, but he also worked with Laurel and Hardy and Harold Lloyd and the Three Stooges. Uh, this is the first time you've seen the TV series. What do you think of the TV series as opposed to the movies? It is interesting. I mean, 
I look at it this way. The TV series is nice in one way in that it, it's like 20, what, 26 minutes an episode. Twenty. It's like in the late mid-20s. So if you want a nice bite-sized chunk of Abbott and Costello, it's like, good. you could put it in. And, you know, some, you got the who's on first routine in one of the episodes. So, so you got some of these nice things you can see. And um, I've shown that I've shown that episode to the children. You know, I was like, "Hey, guys, look, look, here it is again." You know, because they they're used to hearing it on um, the audio because I had I had the audio cassette that had like classic routines, and that's how yeah. they got introduced to it. Yeah. And so this way, they were actually able to see the interaction. And of course, there's so many variations of who's on first that you can pick from YouTube and find. It's hard to say like which one's the best. They're all funny. You know, just depends on the link. Uh, I've really enjoyed it it's, it's because it gives you the bite-sized chunks. I, I enjoy both, you know, and, and I think what, help, what helps me is that I'm getting the ticket at my own time instead of back in the day where if you missed it, you missed it. You know, now it's like I got it on Blu-ray, so I can watch it. You know, I can watch a few episodes on one day, and then I can pick it up a couple of weeks later and watch right. a few more. So you're not, so I'm not getting the oversaturation. And I think that's what's nice about it. And you can watch it when it's not a chore. Uh, I've enjoying the little bonuses that are on there, like I said, with the commentaries and stuff like that. So you can get some of that extra little details and feedback of it that I wouldn't have known before. But right now it's just kind of nice for being able to see it the first time. And as I'm looking forward to season two, just to see now, especially now I know it's going to be something different than the first season. Yeah, and see how that all plays out and i'm just it's just one of those things it's like a curiosity because it's like i love it and you get to see it now is every episode a home run no not every episode is going to be as good as you know everybody's interests are different there's certain skits that some people love and other people are like eh, i've seen it a lot so it's going to vary as always but if you enjoy Abbott and costello there's no reason in the world you're not going to enjoy the tv show well, Jerry Seinfeld has always said that the Abbott and Costello series was an inspiration for his own show because it was just about being funny. It wasn't about a character arc and life lessons. And if a situation was funny, Abbott and Costello did it. If a situation was funny, Seinfeld did it. It's a lot like um, sketch comedy where things are unrelated. We did a lot of research for the Blu-rays of the TV series. And one of the bonus extras you have for the season two set is a lost script. There were a couple of scripts that weren't filmed for whatever reason, but this one script that we found was on the schedule to be the last episode of the season. And then for some reason it was replaced by another episode. I suspect that that was because by this point they had run out of money and this, this script was kind of ambitious with a lot of sets and a lot of uh, characters. But you get to read that lost script in the bonus material. And we have uh, two commentary tracks and some commercials with Abbott and Costello for Campbell's Soup and Easy Pop Popcorn, which were sponsors of the TV series. And if you're a fan, I know you've probably bought the previous DVD releases, but there's a huge difference in the quality. Really, this is like seeing the series for the first time. And then you also get a lot of bonus features as well. Now, the episode that's coming out prior to your episode, also in January, is a friend of mine, Bill Mize, and I end up talking about Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Huh? And, and we both enjoyed it. And, and I, I know what you were talking about, like, oh, like the TV shows all have a plot. As we were going through, we said, well, this movie has a plot. I mean, the plot is basically Abbott and Costello meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And there's a few little things. I mean, the plot is in the title. And yeah. I think a lot of comedies that are similar, most of the comedies you can look at, 
there's, 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 there's quite a few exceptions, but I mean, the majority of them, I think, really have a loose plot that go from gag to gag, and there's a, there's a line that you can go and travel through. And that's pretty much what a lot of the Abbott and Costello movies do. Some of them, the plots are a little more intricate, but some of them are a little more basic. And with the same thing with most comedies, you know, some of them have an intricate plot and some of them are basic. Most of them are basic follow through. But I don't think that takes away from the enjoyment of the movie. But what was it? What, what were their opinions of working with Boris Karloff? Because he did two movies with them. And we all know he did not do Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein for various reasons, but he did come back to do Abbott and Costello meet the killer and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think they respected Boris Karloff a great deal. You know, they were notorious practical jokers on their sets, but they treated co-stars with respect, and they kind of laid off on that stuff. I don't think Karloff would have done a second movie with them otherwise. Uh, He did Abbott and Costello meet the killer Boris Karloff a few years earlier in 1949. Now, both of these films, Meet the Killer and uh, Jekyll and Hyde, were kind of really inspired by Meet Frankenstein, the character that Karloff plays in Meet the Killer, was originally a female character, but the studio was so desperate to remind people of Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein that they uh, cast him in that role and uh, made the title of the movie Abbott and Costello Meet the Killer Boris Karloff, which is kind of unwieldy. With Meet Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, the studio just uh, kept turning up other monsters that they could meet to continue the cycle. This movie turned out to be a hit, but for me, it's uh, it's just too much slapstick. But Abbott gets hit on the head and knocked over the head and knocked down more times in this movie than I think he did in all the previous movies combined. Maybe it was a way for kids to get even with Bud Abbott in some way for being so mean to Lou Costello. I think that could be right, true. It, it seemed more Three Stooges-like than the other ones prior, or Laurel and Hardy, where you know Hardy was getting to come up from Laurel by order by you know, accident or whatever. So it seemed it was like a little tweaking of the, the system. And well, I agree, I, I missed the wordplay. I missed the wordplay. Yeah, that movie came out in 1953. And as I said, they were doing the burlesque routines on live TV and on their own TV series. And I don't think you could have had uh, these routines in that movie because it would be overkill. No, there's one thing I remember reading. I, have, I didn't read this recently, but I remember reading about this for years and for decades. And I was wondering how true this was and then how much of it, if it is true, how much of an issue it was. There was a thing where, where Lou at one time wanted to have his name first. You know, I remember reading, I didn't know how much validity that holds true. You know, I can ask you now and how much of the real issue that was. The billing went back and forth in the very beginning of their partnership when they weren't very well known at all. At the Steel Pier, they were sometimes billed as Costello and Abbott and sometimes as Abbott and Costello. Now in burlesque, you would see ads that advertise the stripper's name very big and sometimes the name of the comedian. Even when they were partners, Costello's name would be in the ad, but not Abbott's. That might be a function of Costello being popular in that town or well-known, but uh, they thought that he was a selling point. Later on, uh, once they became movie stars, Lou started to feel like he should get more of the money, and they started to change the split to 55-45, but then he also wanted to change the billing. And they had been Abbott and Costello now for three or four years, and Universal said, no, we bought Abbott and Costello, not Costello and Abbott. And I guess they thought that Costello and Abbott might confuse people or maybe even signal to people that there was some friction between the team. And Bud also supposedly said he'd break up the team if the billing changed. So the billing stayed Abbott and Costello. Which makes sense to me. I always, you know, once once you're famous as one thing, you know, you you want to stick with that. Otherwise, you don't want to cause confusion. What I always heard was because 
Bud Abbott was the straight man that back in the day, billing was the straight man was always billed first. But this seems to be different. That's why I was I was wondering how you know how much validity that held. Well, the conventional wisdom was that the straight man was the more valuable member of the team because the comedian could get off track looking for laughs, and you had to keep the sketch going and hit certain beats to get to the punchline. And in some cases, they probably did get more money than the comedians because there were more comedians than straight men. But there are also some examples in burlesque where the comedian's name went first, so that didn't seem to be a hard and fast rule. But, you know, Burns and Allen, that's a, that's the straight man going first. Martin and Lewis, the straight man, goes first. Ronan Martin, the straight man, goes first. It does seem to be um, some leeway there. And that's all, that's all I'm asking because it's like some of these things, people will say, well, this is the conventional wisdom because everybody yeah. said that. doesn't always, I've, but there's many times I found out years, decades later, that was always wrong. It was yeah. just maybe somebody put it out there and, and everybody refers back to that source saying, see, it was said here, and, and that's what he all referred to. And you still see that with modern reporting nowadays where, People will refer to a source, and that source could have the whole thing wrong, but they refer to that one because that's the first one that came out or somebody put it out there, and it sadly holds true to this day. Yeah, that's true. I found a lot of errors in the uh, Bud and Lou book by Bob Thomas, which was the basis for the TV movie with Harvey Corman and Buddy Hackett playing Abbott and Costello, which is a whole other issue. But uh, I, so I thought that book uh, couldn't be trusted. And I've always wanted to be as accurate as possible, you know, so... And that's one of the things that's nice from researching for this talk with you is there is a source that people can go to that is, is very accurate, and that is the International Fan Club. Yes, yeah, the official Abbott and Costello Fan Club, abbottandcostellofanclub.com. Very simple. It's, there's the latest news. There's a biography of Bud and Lou. There's articles about who's on first and their films and TV work. And then there are three membership levels to read the club magazine, which has uh, 75 issues over the years that we've uh, published. And uh, so you can get read uh, the latest issues or you can read all 75, depending on the membership level you choose. And the current issue has a two-part uh, article about Bud and Lou's first two years together of their partnership, which is a critical first two years, of course. And there are some very rare photographs and clippings. So if you're an Abbott and Costello fan and you're interested in learning more about their history, this is a good place to uh, go to. The back issues have articles about Lou's early life and Bud's early life and interviews with dozens of people who worked with Bud and Lou, their family members, and more. So just go there, poke around, see what interests you, and hopefully you'll join up with us. And one of the things I've, I've read, when they were filming, because they were so used to being on stage, and they're always used to being able to go straight through, and of course one of the, the things about filming is like, um, hurry up and wait type <laughs> thing. And, and, and I think you alluded to it earlier, they did a lot of practical jokes, but then, then they do other stuff to try to keep themselves fresh and, and keep themselves energized during those downtime. Oh, yeah. The practical jokes jump started them when they were going into a scene cold. It gets everybody to relax. It gets the crew laughing and so on. They didn't, you know, they also didn't like to rehearse a scene. They certainly didn't have to rehearse their routines because they knew those very, very well. They might have to rehearse it a little bit if another actor was in the scene with them so the other actor knew what to expect. But they didn't like to even rehearse the expositional scenes that were about the plot. They were basically told uh, what the scene was about. They told what their first line was and what their exit line was. And everything in between 
they put into their own words, which made it sound very, very natural and very spontaneous. And that, uh, you know, really comes across in the films and the TV work. And just to go back to what you were saying one time, that uh, that Lou was a good actor, you know, yeah. for different things. Well, Bud was and too. Think, Bud was too. And Bud was, and Bud was too. But I mean, there's one thing we see with Lou that with um, Wagon Train, where mm-hmm. he has that one episode where he was in and... Um, with Beverly Warsburn, I've interviewed Beverly Warsburn. I know her, and I know how which stories that she shares with her side with Lucas. And I thought this might be a good chance for you to talk, maybe from from what you can get from the family or other things, or from your research. Like, what was it like for him to do a dramatic role? Because I think a lot of comedians are very good actors, but to make somebody laugh and to do it is such a tough job. And you've seen it with many comedians, like Robin Williams. Um, go through and being able to perform these dramatic roles. I agree a hundred percent. I think comedians can be great dramatic actors, but great dramatic actors cannot be comedians. You know, comedians are actors. They're acting in a character just like a dramatic actor would. And as we said earlier about who's on first, they make it believable because they're so invested in the scene. That's the mark of a great actor. They're totally in the scene, totally invested in the scene. And with Wagon Train, uh, Lou had seen Ed Wynn, who was a comedian on radio and television, make a transition to drama when he did Requiem for a Heavyweight. And Lou wanted to be a dramatic actor. And he thought that if Ed Wynn can do it, maybe I can too. And it's certainly less taxing on your body than physical comedy. But uh, when he was doing Wagon Train, he did say he was very nervous about it. And every once in a while, he would flub a line and say something or do something funny because he was used to doing that in the Abbott and Costello movies and would go for the laugh. I don't know if Beverly mentioned that to you, but I'd be very curious to hear if she recalls what happened when Lou flubbed the line. I'm going to have to call and ask her that because I don't think anybody's ever asked her because most people never think of it from Lou's perspective. They're thinking of it from her perspective working with Lou. And right. now I can... Now, having this information, I can ask her, well, what was it like oh, if Lou flubbed the line and he started to go off on the community? And that might jar me because she was a child. At, she was a child back then. Yeah. And yeah. so memories are always hit or miss with different things. But she just remembers, if, I, if I'm remembering correctly, from talking with her about it. And we didn't bring this up during our interview, but we I've talked to her since. Oh, okay. How much she loved being with him. You know, when we did the uh, Blu-ray for Jack and the Beanstalk, I interviewed David Stollery, who plays the bratty little kid in the movie. And he said that working with Abbott and Costello was a highlight of his career. And at one point, he smashes a water pitcher on uh, Lou's head. And he said that Lou's reaction was so funny that he started laughing and ruined the take. So what happened to him is what happened to Glenn Strange and Lou and Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, where Glenn just couldn't stop laughing because... Lou was just hitting him every time. Yeah, that's such a great outtake to see the monster laugh in that scene. But that's another scene that Lou had to be convinced to do. That gag goes back to the Renaissance and the Commedia dell'arte. It's a very traditional comedy situation. But at first he wasn't sure if it would be funny. And then he makes Glenn Strange laugh. Glenn Strange said, I don't know what it is about you, but even from the back of your head, I know what's going on. I'll just go back to when I watched Epic and Me Frankenstein. He is like, the human version of Scooby-Doo going through a movie. And it's just because you, you just love him. You know, his charisma's there and everything. And like I said, Bud Abbott is like Shaggy. They're the partners. They're going through it together, except Bud doesn't get scared as easily as Lou and, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in, in the movie. And it's just, I don't know. I, I think a lot of Scooby-Doo was based off 
Lou Costello. Yeah, that's a good point. And, you know, Robert Lees, who co-wrote Hold That Ghost and Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein, even wrote an episode of Scooby-Doo. But uh, there are so many layers to Abbott and Costello Me Frankenstein. You know, Bud is like a parent where he's trying to convince the kid that there's no such thing as monsters and lose the kid who sees scary things that the parent doesn't believe, which makes kids identify with Lou even more. And eventually, of course, Lou is vindicated because the adult admits that monsters are real. And, you know, again, Lou didn't like this script. You know, very often an artist doesn't recognize his own best work. I mean, Woody Allen didn't want to release Manhattan, and Claude Monet destroyed a whole bunch of his famous water lily paintings before an exhibition, and Bruce Springsteen didn't want to release Born in the USA. And I wonder what Costello would say today now that the film has become his lasting legacy and the most famous Abbott and Costello movie. Exactly, and it's just, you wish he would have lived long enough to see what, what the future was going to hold, and um, you know, sadly he didn't, and it's just, it is, it is what it is. I mean, who knows what would have happened if he would have lived for another 20, 25 years, you know, with his starting to switch to the drama, or, and like I said, maybe he and Bud would have came back, um, you know, some years later, and it had that rebirth coming through with um, television again with the other variety shows that were coming out yes. in the 70s. Who knows? Oh, I think Lou probably could have gone on to do more drama or wind up on a sitcom, maybe playing some character's father or something. I'm not sure Bud would have had the same opportunities or been pursued as much as Lou. Lou was also talking about doing a game show like uh, Groucho Marx was doing. And he would have been very funny on a game show because he was uh, naturally funny and a great ad-libber. But his career was, uh, you know, cut tragically short. And uh, one thing that was somewhat gratifying, I think, was when he was sick in the early 50s, he got a ton of fan mail from the TV series. And I think that was very gratifying for him. Bud Abbott was uh, listed in the phone book. And in the late 1960s and early 1970s, people would call him up and talk to him. And then he'd invite him to his home. So anybody who knocked on his door would be invited in. So it was nice for Bud to see the ongoing interest as well. So like I said, fans love them equally. And we uh, recognize what each of them brought to the act. Yeah, it's, at least he got to see it. And I think what it, you think about it, for a lot of people watching a TV show, and so on. You had people in their 20s and 30s now, like the late 60s and the 70s, and you see it all the time with a lot of you know, people going back there and seeing the renaissance of different decades. As those people that grew up with, that grow up, they want to see the things that reflect back. You know, now it's like every for a while it's been everything the 80s, and you know, and sometimes I remember when I was watching Happy Days when I was growing up. You know, that was that was in the 70s, but it was set in the 50s. So everything seems to have like either somewhere in that 20 to 40 year window period um, where, where things, where people grow up and they want to have that comfort of seeing things that they saw when they grew up to share with their children. And that, I think that would have happened to them. They would have had that resurgence around that time frame. Um, whether it would have been special, like the Bob Hope specials, there might've been Abbott and Costello specials. You know, you might've had two or three a year and, yeah. and, and yeah. who knows what would have, what would have went down. That's true. We do like nostalgia, and it's very important to share things that you like with your children. I think that's another great thing about these restorations. They look so good, even though they're in black and white, and some kids probably still won't want to uh, watch black and white, but these shows look like they're brand new. Maybe that'll get kids to watch, and maybe they'll connect with them. Because Abbott and Costello's comedy is timeless. It's not just slapstick, but it's great wordplay and funny logic. I agree with you, and just, and just add to it. Um, one of the things that Bill Mize and I brought up in the episode prior is a lot of their comedy is not 
topical, so it doesn't age. Where there are a lot of comedic uh, comedies out there that are just set in that time frame, and then it's got a shelf life. And once it passes that shelf life, that's it. It's pretty much nobody nobody that, that's growing up nowadays is going to want to watch that because you have to explain to them why all these things are funny. And nobody, if you have to explain the joke, it's already over. That's a great point. They didn't do anything topical except maybe on their live radio shows, but not in the movies and not in the television series. Maybe you could consider the service comedies as topical, but everybody knows that there was a war back then. But for the most part, you're right. It's just pure comedy, tried and true gags. And that's the great thing of having the things available now on Blu-ray. And then, you know, the, the technology is there. Season one is already out. Season two of the TV show is coming out. Um, you know, it's pretty much going to be sold anywhere where, you know, uh, the major retailers that so you can yeah, find it read or available. Yeah, if I may, the distributor is ClassicFlixFLIX.com, and you can order it there. And again, if you're an Abbott and Costello fan, you probably already have these shows on DVD, but these Blu-rays look and sound amazing for me. It's like seeing them for the first time. And then you have all the bonus extras. I don't know if you've gotten to this yet, Steve, but on season one, they have some episodes without the audience laugh track, so you can watch them and judge for yourself if it's still funny. I haven't gotten to that part yet. Um, so I'm, cur I'm curious to do that because I've had a thing where sometimes with certain movies, if I want to see certain things, um, I'll sometimes turn the sound off and just to see the actors, how they're performing Ooh. and just to watch their body. Because then you're focusing, you, the music's not there, the, the, the dialogue's not there, but you can right. I tell what's going on from the body language? And, and sometimes it's very interesting. It's, it's, it's when you do that, you can watch it and you, you can see these subtle performances that you might have missed because of sensory overload from some other stuff. But now you're able to just focus on those slight body movements and other things that are going on and be like, wow, yeah. that, they really did something. Cause I know, I know what's going on just from them. And that person is those, those that group or individual is doing great acting. That's almost a throwback to silent movies, Steve. <laughs> but uh, that's a great technique to judge if the actors are really carrying the scene or they're relying on the music or even the special effects. Yeah, if you can tell from their expressions and the body language, the actors are doing a great job. And that's what you're saying, the example, like the sound with the laugh track off, you'll know if it's funny, if you're laughing, if you're giggling, you're, you know, and, and if you're watching it with your family, which is better yet, you know, because it's, it's always good to have a group watching something. Yes. with you whether it's a movie a tv show so you can get that shared experience and enjoy it so much more there's a funny story about hold that ghost uh robert lees and fred ronaldo who wrote the movie went to see it by themselves at the studio and uh as writers of course they might be disappointed about the way a line was read or something wasn't shot right but they were complaining to each other oh this movie's terrible we should take our names off this and then they went to a screening with an audience and the audience was screaming and laughing and the writers were screaming and laughing. And they said, we must have been crazy to want to take our names off this thing. It's hilarious because something, you know, happens with an audience and a comedy in general and uh, Abbott and Costello in particular. It's magical. I will say there's two genres that I feel really do get augmented by audience. Comedy's one, horror's the other. Yeah, and yeah. you get Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, which you combine the two, and, and I've actually had the advantage once, at least once, I think I did twice, where I was able to see it in the theater type situation with a group of people, and it's just 
everybody, you know, laughing, or if it's the horrific moment where you're like, Ugh! or, you know, <laughs> or screaming or something, you know, and you can look and see people covering their eyes or whatever. And it adds to the whole experience when you get to see everybody else's reaction, especially if you've seen it before and you know what's coming and you know they haven't. We've all had that buddy with us where we've seen the movie and we would, and we know it's coming and we want to see, okay, how are they going to react? And, and, and you just love it. <laughs> I had that experience with Silence of the Lambs. I hadn't seen it, and I went with people who had, and I could just feel their eyes on me, waiting for me to react to something. But uh, I saw Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein for the first time with an audience when I was in my 20s, and that was a revelation to me, because I'd only seen it at home with my family or a group of friends. But when you see it with an audience, uh, you know, no wonder it was a hit. And that, that's the fun part. And, and I'm glad that people like yourself are helping these guys they're doing the restoration you're helping your way with the commentaries and the information and they're able to do these restorations so we can see these things and there's so many things out there that i'm looking forward to being restored and the best way to have these things happen is for people to support the people that are restoring so that way they have the funds to then restore future work and so if you want to see more of the stuff that's out there with Abbott and costello or other type of restoration you know you know, support these pro these projects. I know some people nowadays are waiting for, oh, it'll come out on streaming. I'll be able to see it for free or nominal fee or whatever. I'm a physical media guy. It's nice to have it. It's nice to give the support to the people that are taking the time to create these things or restore these things. Yeah, this is the best this series has ever or will ever look and sound. Plus the uh, bonus features enhance your enjoyment of it. And like you say, Steve, it also preserves this stuff and it supports people who want to preserve stuff and it makes people want to preserve stuff uh, if they know that people are going to support it. Otherwise, we're going to lose a lot of our cultural heritage. Think about all the silent movies that we've lost because nobody thought to preserve them or even some of the videotape television shows that networks actually recorded over the videotape or just threw the tapes out. So by supporting this, you are helping to preserve and share the stuff with another generation. Uh, I definitely agree, and I just want to remind people that your new book, One Night in the Tropics, is coming out later this year, so look for it, and you can also get Hold That Ghost, the original screenplay, and Fuck Private, the original screenplay, which are already currently out, and if you like looking over the screenplays and seeing how those things change, as you already brought up what the changes are in some of those things, uh, that's something that's always gold, because I always find it nice to sometimes read the screenplay and see what actually ended up in the film and how they altered stuff. Cause I think that sometimes it actually, there are a few films out there that actually explain what, what did I see? Oh, now I understand what they were trying to do. Yeah. Again, the books are all about the productions and you almost feel like you're on the set with Abbott and Costello. There are a lot of anecdotes and photos and the press books and more. Leonard Moulton wrote the introduction to the Buck Privates book and Fred Ronaldo's son wrote the introduction to the Hold That Ghost book. And if you're a fan, you know that uh, Hold That Ghost was filmed and then temporarily shelved. And then a lot of new scenes were shot and added to the movie. The book has the original script of the movie that nobody has ever seen. And we also have the retake script. So it's a great lesson on how movies were made during the studio era. And I want to thank you for taking time because there's a lot I learned about Abbott and Costello through this. And I know we've only like scratched a small part of the surface of, you know, maybe maybe a percent of what there is to learn about it. And that's people can go to the fan club website and there's 
I think if they join at a certain level, you're let you can get all the quarterly newsletters or something like that. Yes, again, it's Abbott and Costello Fan Club.com. We have three membership tiers. You can read uh, just recent issues or all 75 bag issues. We've had interviews with Bud and Lou's friends, family, and coworkers, and many of them aren't around anymore. So it's a place to see that material, to read that material. But I want to thank you for taking time to go over this with me, and I hope you come back on the show again. We can talk about either Abbott or Costello or other movies. I mean, it's, you've been great. You have too, Steve. Thank you so much for having me. I would love to come back and talk about Abbott and Costello or any other movie. Thank you so much. Thank you for that wonderful discussion, Ron. After my dad recorded with Ron, he was also able to record with Beverly Washburn. Here is Beverly's remembrance of working with Lou Costello. Hello, everybody. Now, Ron was asking me about what Beverly Washburn thought about Lou Costello and Wagon Train, and I reached out to Beverly, and she's kind enough to spend a few minutes with me talking about it. How are you doing today, Beverly? I'm doing fine, honey. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's always a pleasure to talk with you, and um, we're recording this the day after Christmas, so Merry Christmas to you. Well, thank you. Same to you and to everyone out there listening to this. And um, I know, Monster Bash, you've been asked this question before about what was it like working with Lou Costello on Wagon Train, and I thought we would do that and get it recorded so that way people will know and it will fit with this episode. So what was what was Lou Costello like? Well, you're right about people asking me about him because he was so loved by so many people. And when I read for the role of... Um, Midge uh, on Wagon Train, I was told that it would be with Luke Costello. And, you know, as an actor, you go on auditions and you always hope, of course, that you get the part. But for this one, I was especially hoping and praying because I was a big fan of Abbott and Costello and I thought what a joy that would be to work with him. And honestly, Stephen, he was everything and more that I could ever hope for. He was one of the sweetest nicest, um, just most wonderful human beings. And I feel so honored and blessed that I got the chance to know him and work with him. And it was, he was just, he was the best. He was so easy to, to be around. And he wrote me a little note, um, telling me, you know, how nice it was to work with me. And then he hoped that he could work with me again, and I have it framed because I'm so I was so honored to get such a wonderful note from him. He was the best. And that sounds wonderful, and I know that's a, definitely a keepsake that you've had taken to proper care with. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, he when he did Abbott and Costello, they pretty much have free reign, um, meaning that they could ad lib and kind of goof around and say things that maybe weren't scripted. But in Wagon Train, he had to keep to the script. And so for him, it was a little bit difficult because he was so used to ad-libbing and to have to memorize, you know, paragraphs and all that. It was somewhat difficult for him at times, but he was so cute because every time he'd forget his line instead of just stopping or like some people say, sorry, you know, do it again, or, or they'll reach out to the script person and just say line, 
and then they'll give them the line and they continue rolling. But with him, every time he'd forget his line, he would just look straight into the camera and say, so how are you? And he did that every time and it would just crack me up. And I think sometimes he almost did it intentionally just to get my reaction because it would always make me laugh. And he was just so, so dear. And honestly, for those people who have seen it, I think, you know, you will agree with me that he did a wonderful job as a a dramatic actor. He was very believable, you know, because a lot of people thought, well, he's a comedian. How could he do a role like that? And um, he he was wonderful in his role and just such a joy to work with. And I, I count my blessings, you know, and just to, to have been able to work with him is, is truly one of my fondest memories. When Ron and I were talking just a little while ago, we actually believed that a lot of comedians are can be very good in dramas because it's. I think it's harder. And I'm going to ask you this: is is it harder to do comedy than it is to do drama? You know, it, was that something you noticed of him in your acting career? Yeah, I mean, some people do feel that. I mean, being a comedian, you're always hoping to get the laugh. And not everybody always laughs at the right punchline or whatever. And so I'm sure that can be more difficult at times to be funny in hopes that you're going to make somebody laugh because if they don't laugh, then it's the joke or whatever can fall flat. So um, a lot of people think it's harder to be a comedian. But for a comedian to segue into drama such as this, I'd have to think that would have been difficult. But um, he just really pulled it off, but it's funny, you know, to to watch that episode, it really shows how the world has changed, because this was done back in the 50s, and the storyline for people who haven't seen it, you know, it takes place where, you know, he plays a drifter, and I'm kind of an orphan runaway, and um, he takes me under his wing, and we're traveling together as stowaways, and back then... You know, it it was an innocent time, and nobody thought twice about it. Where in today's world, having such you know such a story would be totally inappropriate. You couldn't have a story with a little girl traveling with a man. You know that would be just awful. But it, as I said, it, it was it was innocent. He was just a a kind man that took care of me because I was a runaway. And we loved each other, but we were just, he was like more of like a father figure or an uncle. But even so, you couldn't have a storyline like that in today's world. It would be considered, you know, considered inappropriate. But back then, you know, it was a different time, a different day. And um, nobody thought twice about it because it, it really was innocent. We were just traveling together, but times have changed, you know, and. Uh, for those of you, I mean, some people will watch the show and they don't wait for the credits, but for people who do read the credits, uh, Harry Von Zell, who was the um, announcer on the old Burns and Allen, George Burns and Gracie Allen show, he wrote the episode. And a lot of people don't know that because they don't wait to see the credits. And he was also in the in the episode. And I won't give the spoiler alert about because <laughs> there's a, a, a murder that takes place and just everybody has to figure out who did it. But 
But anyway, having worked, I did three episodes of Wagon Train, and the first one was the pilot with Ernest Borgnine, and he, too, was just the kindest man. And then I did one with Lorraine Day, and she was wonderful, too. But I have to say my favorite episode that I did of Wagon Train was the Tobias Jones story, working with Lou Costello. And it's weird, Stephen, because at the time, there was something, and I was young, so I don't, looking back, I couldn't put my finger on it, but there was something about him that exuded almost like a sadness. And he would always cover it by making jokes and laughing and being wonderful. But I found out later, um, you know, his son drowned and he never got over that. He never did. And I think that was part of it, you know, because he just had this little twinge about him that seemed there was something missing, like sad. And I, I picked up on it, even though I, I think I was 12 or 13 at the time, but I didn't know what it was because, you know, as quickly as I would think, I wonder if he's sad. He would make a joke or, you know, we'd get back to the scene or whatever. And so I, I truly think in my heart that that had something to do with it because I had read later that losing his son was something that he truly never got over. So, I mean, that was just my take on it. I don't know. I might be wrong, but that's, that's what I felt. But anyway, but I, I have to say that working with Lucasville, and I've been so blessed in my career as a child actress working with so many wonderful people and he's definitely way up at the top of the list of my all-time favorites i want to thank you so much beverly for taking time around this holiday season to you know give me a few minutes to talk about lou and for listeners that want to know more about your career you and i did a fuller longer interview two years ago so you can scroll back down in the the podcast wow, it's been planet. two years already. <laughs> time flies. I know. Oh, my goodness. This time does fly. But, yeah, no, I, I want to thank you, Stephen, um, for including me in this because anytime I'm able to talk about Lucas Bello, it always gives me great pleasure because I truly loved him. And I know his daughter, Chris Costello, and she's such a sweetheart. And um, it's my pleasure to do this little interview and thank you so much for allowing me to share my memories with him. Oh, thank you so much too. And again, um, I hope you have a happy new year and I'm looking forward to seeing you next year at Monster Bash. Oh, thank you. I'm looking forward to seeing you too, Stephen and everyone who will be there. I hope you'll stop by my table and say hello. So, um, Happy New Year to all of you, and thank you so much again, Stephen. And I, I love you. You're just the, the nicest person, and I hope that you will be totally blessed in the coming year, as well as all the listeners. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, too, Beverly. Thank you, everybody, for joining us for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. We would like to thank Mr. Palumbo and Beverly Washburn again for joining us. We again recommend both seasons of the Abbott and Costello TV show and their Jack and the Beanstalk movie. We also suggest getting Ron's books, too. Please send any feedback you have to the Diecast Movie Podcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. 
Once again, thank you for joining us and stay tuned to see which movie we'll pick next.